That last stanza says, Oh, may I love your precious word. And let that be our prayer this morning, uh, all the time, and especially as we come to another opportunity to open that word and to mine uh, from it its truths and its nuggets of gold and jewels for us. You can be seated. Take your Bibles out while you are being seated, and let me have you turn them to the book of Romans and to chapter 8 this morning. We'll read in just a a couple of moments after just a a word of introduction. I mentioned back um, as we began our study of the book of Romans back in, it was June of last year, that this book, the book of Romans, is what I called the Hyperion of the New Testament. Well, if not of the whole Bible, a reference to that name given to the world's tallest known living tree, the, the Hyperion, that redwood, that California redwood uh, that is really about 170 miles from here and stands and towers above even the other great tall California redwoods in a grove there on the hillside. But this morning we come to the chapter within that book that is very commonly referred to as the high point of that tree. And while we have to be careful of elevating one portion of Scripture above others, it is certainly true that for the God-glorifying nature of its truth, the comfort that it gives to God's people, the assurance that it announces, the love of God that it magnifies, one would be hard-pressed to find another chapter that would equal it in its usefulness to the child of God, its encouragement to the child of God, and as a motivation to glorify the God of our justification. It is a chapter that has some of the greatest promises that you will find anywhere in Scripture, some of the greatest assurances of any chapter in the Bible. It is a chapter that, if you are of a mind to memorize Scripture, chunks of Scripture, it's a chapter that should be very high on the list of candidates for memorization. Even if you do not memorize it, this is a chapter that should be well read by every Christian. It should be well understood by every Christian. It should be well believed by every Christian. And with that in mind, let us read Romans chapter 8 together. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. So let me have you stand as you, if if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Romans 8 and enjoy as we hear God's Word read to us this morning, Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose." For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this rich mind that we have just read. As your word speaks to us, Lord, we, we pray that you would enrich us. We pray that you would uh, convict us. We pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you would humble us, Lord, as we consider these things that are before us. May, may you be glorified as the God who has given to us these great things, these great words, these great blessings. And we ask for your blessing upon our time now in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We should just stop there and go home. What a rich chapter to just read through. But we need to begin looking at this, and we first need to set this chapter in its context, in the the broader context of the book uh, here in Paul's letter to the Romans. And I might first draw your attention to the way that the word or that the chapter begins, where he says, There is therefore. We'll stop there for just a moment. We learned way back when we started chapter 6, and we've mentioned this as we've been going through our study of chapter 6 and chapter 7, uh, that, that those two chapters, 6 and 7, were a sort of parenthesis in Paul's argument, in his laying out of the doctrine of justification. Um, if you think back to chapter 5, in fact, if you want to turn back there just real briefly, you'll, you'll see that that chapter begins with the word, therefore. And what we learned uh, was that after Paul had finished laying out before that all of the basics of the doctrine of justification, uh, that is, the means of our being counted right with God, as we learned that because of man's sinfulness, he is in fact under condemnation with no way of his own to escape that situation. As we learned, however, that God provided a way for man's escape, not through the works of the law, but through a righteousness that comes to man by grace, through faith. Faith in Christ, who through his redemptive work, that is both his life and his death, provided in himself, especially in his death, a sacrifice for sin that could indeed and does indeed save as many as will receive it. And a a righteousness comes from Christ and from His work, a righteousness that is given to us, Christ's righteousness, that is able to stand the rigor of the penetrating gaze of a just and holy God. And we learned that also God makes that remedy available, as I say, to all who will receive it by faith alone. And through it, through Christ's work and God's reckoning of Christ's work to us as ours, God declares the believing sinner forgiven and righteous in His sight. That is chapters 3 and 4. And that is the doctrine of justification. And because of that then, Paul in the beginning of verse five, chapter 5 says, Therefore, remember Paul has begun then to lay out the benefits 
of justification. And right there in chapter 5 and verse 1, we had one of the biggest ones that we talked about. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, look what he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. We who were at once with, at odds with God, at war with God, have now been brought to peace with God through Christ. There were more, more of these benefits of justification that we looked at as we went through chapter 5. We have access into God's grace. We have the ability to rejoice in the hope that God gives us. We have the ability to rejoice even in suffering. We have assurance that we will be saved from God's wrath. We have the truth that we are united with Christ. He is our head, and that means salvation. Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. All of that we've learned, all those benefits. Even when we got into that parenthetical section in chapter 6 and 7, we learned of more benefits. That we have died to the reigning power of sin. We are no longer slaves of sin. In fact, we are now slaves to God. The power of the law to condemn us is done away with. It is gone that we now live not under the law, but under grace. We are dealt with by God's grace. We learn that we have died to the law and we have become wed to Christ. And we serve God now by the work of the Spirit. So all of those benefits we've seen already, all those benefits of God justifying us, reckoning us righteous in His Son. But we said as we looked at chapter 6 and 7 that Paul is not done laying out those benefits, the benefits that we gain as a child of God. And boy, is that the truth. We just remembered a few minutes ago as we read chapter 8. Because in chapter 8 now... The parenthesis of chapters 6 and 7 being closed, now he goes back to pick up where he was in, in, verse, in chapter 5. He continues this, pro, this project of laying out these wonderful benefits of the justification that we have. And in this chapter, he brings that project, uh, that symphony, to a crescendo. Also, as Paul is laying out all of this us. We're going to see something as we go through chapter 8. You may have picked it up as we read through it. And that is the emergence here in chapter 8 of Romans of the prominence of the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. God has been and of course will remain critical to the discussion. Jesus Christ has been and of course will remain critical to the discussion. But here in chapter 8, the work of the Holy Spirit comes to prominence. His work in the lives of God's people comes to the forefront as we look at this chapter. Now, this won't be the first mention of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, of course, but let me put it in perspective for you. Whereas there are four mentions of the Holy Spirit in the first seven chapters of Romans, here in chapter 8 alone, we will find him mentioned 21 times. So certainly a shift in, in focus and in prominence of the Holy Spirit. So what is the subject of this chapter? 
with so many high points, so many memorable verses and memorable phrases and so much uh, wonderful teaching and powerful teaching, what is central to it? Well, actually, it's pretty simple. Romans 8 is actually structurally, in, in broad strokes, a pretty easy chapter. We'll see as we dive into the details that there is some, some, some deep mining going on that needs to go on, but basically very, very simple. Paul, in, the, in Romans chapter 8, lays out one overarching principle, and we've seen this in, in earlier chapters. He lays out this one overarching general truth, one controlling thought, we could say, and then the rest of the chapter works out that thought and supports it, and proves it, and shines a light on it. And that main thought is found in the opening verse of the chapter. A verse that we hear often here in this congregation, in various parts of our service, um, in sermons, because it is such a glorious truth. The subject of Romans chapter 8 is there in verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the crux of the chapter. If you highlight in your Bible, and if you don't already have that verse highlighted, highlight it. Then, as I said, Paul is going to build the case for how and why this is true, particularly seen, as I say, in the work of the Spirit of God as He does His work. But, of course, Paul will cast his net broadly to include the work of all three persons of the Trinity. The the, the eighth chapter of Roman begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. God, at every point, is gracious, and that grace is shown and magnified. And in between the no condemnation and the no separation, we're going to see and learn about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We will learn about our adoption as God's children. We'll learn about the assurance of future glory for the creation and for us as God's children. We'll learn about the intercession of the Holy Spirit. We'll learn about the assurance that all things are used for, for and meant for the furtherance of our salvation. We will learn, of course, of a golden chain of salvation that binds together all of the work of God in concern with people whom He has set His love on. And we will learn of the promise of every needed resource and the impossibility then at the end of anything separating us from the love of God. But it all starts and it all comes back to verse 1. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for the rest of our time this morning, we're just going to look at that opening verse. Then over the next few weeks, we'll we'll hit the other several ways that Paul supports this statement. But today, let's just look briefly at the statement itself. This is actually 
Christianity 101, Reformed Christianity 101, a very basic and foundational message that you all know. Most of you, I pray, know this. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know this. Paul's statement here in verse 1 is about, on the surface, condemnation. What about it? Well, he says that because of something, there is no condemnation anymore, any longer. For some reason, it no longer exists. But condemnation is an important thing for us to consider. Even though Paul is saying that that where the condemnation once existed, now it doesn't. And we're going to look at it this morning under three questions. Who, what, and how? Who? Who's he talking about? We need to be clear of that as we look at such a great truth. We need to know who he's talking about. Who Who does this refer to? And that's made clear at the very end of verse 1. It is for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means Christians. It means only Christians. It means all Christians. It means every Christian. Because it it is Christians who are in Christ Jesus. Now what does that mean, to be in Christ Jesus? We've talked about it before, haven't we? We've looked at that in previous uh, sections of the epistle, two in particular. The first was chapter 5, in the second half of that chapter. Remember, we talked about there that, that all men are recognized by God as being in or under the headship of one of two people, either Adam or Christ. All of us, at, at one time, were in Adam. We were represented by Him. We were under His headship. We we shared in His failure. Not just His failure, His disobedience, His rebellion. We shared in His insistence on autonomy. We're trying to be the ruler of His own soul. And as sharers in Adam, we were dead in Adam. Romans 5.15 says, And therefore, we, as being in Adam, were subject to the judgment that was upon Adam. And not just the judgment, but the verdict that must inevitably follow. Romans 5.16 says that the judgment followed one trespass, or I'm sorry, the judgment following one trespass, Paul said, brought condemnation. Verse 18 of chapter 5 says that one trespass, the trespass of Adam, led to condemnation for all men. See, that's what it meant, remember, that Adam acted as the federal head. He represented, he acted on behalf of all of humanity. And we, every one of us, were a part of that community of the damned. But Romans 5 beginning in verse 12, also spoke of another. It spoke of Christ. It spoke of His headship. That just as all men were reckoned along with Adam in Adam, that there are those who are reckoned in Christ. There are those who are in Christ, who are joined to Him by faith. 
and that they are, by virtue of that fact, under the umbrella of Christ. They are represented by Christ just as we were represented by Adam. And those people, Christians we call them, share in the gifts earned by Christ. We share in the work that Christ did. And Paul picks that up again in chapter 6. We saw it in chapter 5. We saw it in chapter 6, the beginning verses. In chapter 6, he said, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Going on, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, he says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We are joined with Christ. We share with Christ in his work. His death is our death. His burial is our burial. and His resurrection is is our resurrection. We are in Christ. Or as Paul says in Romans 8.1, we are in Christ Jesus. And this, beloved, is the foundational aspect of who we are as God's children, as new creations. We are in Christ Jesus. Everything is accounted ours because we are accounted by God as Christ's. All of the blessings, <coughs> Paul said in Ephesians 1.3, every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 1.21, Paul says that God establishes us, he makes us stand in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it is in Christ that we are made new creations. In the book of Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 26, it is in Christ that we are all sons of God through faith. Also from Ephesians, we are seated, Paul says. Right now, this morning, we are seated in the heavenly places because we are united to Christ. It says God has seated us in the heavenly places. How? In Christ Jesus, because He is there. We have been created as the working of God in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10 says. Ephesians 2.13 says we have been brought near to God in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4.32 says we are forgiven in Christ. God gives us peace in the midst of our troubles, Paul said to the Philippians. How? In Christ. And we could go on and on with this. But you are who you are, Christian, this morning, a child of God this morning, because you are reckoned in Christ. In Christ Jesus. That's the who. That's who this refers to. Those who are united to Christ. 
How about the what? What is true of you? Child of God, in Christ, child of God. What is true of every child of God in every age that is such a great benefit that it heads up this great chapter and, as I said, becomes the controlling thought of all of the rest of the great statements in this great chapter, in this great book? Well, it is that for those who are in Christ Jesus, that there is therefore now no condemnation. What kind of condemnation is Paul talking about here? What is condemnation? We should probably get that straight, first of all, because we use the term in a couple of different ways. Sometimes we will often use the word condemnation or condemn to mean giving a, a strong a comment about someone, a strong censure, a, a disapprobation of someone, a reproof of someone. We condemn someone when we speak badly about them. But that's not the real meaning of the word. To condemn someone has to do with pronouncing someone guilty of something, pronouncing a verdict of guilty about something, declaring something to be true of someone that they are guilty. Now, if that language struck a chord with you, good. It should. We've mentioned this several times in the context of talking about justification. I've mentioned that, that when we say, for instance, that justification, the act of justification, is not God making you righteous, but declaring you righteous... I've noted that the opposite of justification is not making someone guilty, but it is declaring them guilty. It is to, to condemn someone means to pronounce a verdict of guilty on them. It's a very common concept. It's a very common set of words in the Bible. And it's used in the civil sphere and in the moral sphere and in the religious sphere. Deuteronomy 25.1 is a good example. And I'm going to read it from the, the New American Standard Translation. It says there that if there is a dispute between men and they go to court, that the judge decides their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Those are the choices. So condemnation is the opposite of justification. <clears throat> justification is to pronounce someone righteous. Condemnation is to pronounce someone guilty. They are opposite verdicts. And for a just judge, this is the only option. To condemn the guilty. To not condemn the innocent. Now, there were many in the, in the Bible that we read about. There are laws about this. There are instances where this is, is talked about where, where that wasn't the case, where the judge would, would justify the wicked, usually for a bribe, for some sort of payoff. And the Bible condemns those who deny justice in that way. It, it condemns those. In the strongest possible terms, you could read Proverbs 17, 15, or Proverbs 24, 24, or Isaiah 5, 23, to see what the Bible thinks of those judges who do not judge justly, who acquit the guilty or condemn the innocent. The one who renders perfect justice 
And perfect judgment at all times and in all places is God, who is pictured as the righteous judge. His nature is to condemn those who are deserving while forgiving those who look to him. He proclaimed that to Moses when he declared his nature to Moses. Listen. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Why? Because that would be a denial of justice. That's in Exodus 34.7 if you're taking notes. For God to condemn someone is for him to pronounce someone guilty of breaking God's law and sentencing him or her to the punishment that's appropriate for that. And specific to Paul's thoughts here, as he puts this in Romans 8.1, is what we would call that ultimate condemnation. The pronouncement by God that one is guilty before God in relation to God's law. And therefore, to be consigned to the lake of fire for eternal punishment. It is this ultimate condemnation that John speaks of in in John 3.18. Remember in John 3.16... He he had given that that wonderful statement of the saving purpose of God sending His Son into the world, and in verse 17. But then in verse 18, He says that whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And earlier in Romans, we spent course a great deal of time beginning in in chapter 1 verse 18 going to chapter 3 verse 20 Paul made one thing abundantly clear to everyone who reads the book and that is that all men are rightly and justly condemned by God that's the whole first section of the book that's the one thing Paul wanted to get to us is that there is none righteous and therefore there are all that are condemned. All have sinned and fall short of what God requires. He is making clear there that no one can expect any other verdict than the verdict of condemnation. Not because God is just out to get everyone. Not because He's a vengeful God who somehow enjoys pronouncing people guilty and extracting punishment Uh, or exacting punishment, rather, upon them. But because He is just, because He is fair, because He is holy, because He is consistent with His Word, His nature is consistent. The psalmist in Psalm 97.2 says that righteousness and justice are the foundations of His throne. And because there is no one righteous in and of themselves, Romans 3.10 says that there is none righteous, not even one. And because God is holy and man is not, man stands condemned. Before God, he stands condemned for his disobedience. 
for his rebellion, for his idolatry, for breaking God's commands regarding our dealing with God and our dealing with man. And this just condemnation carries with it, the Bible tells us, an awful penalty. The penalty of everlasting punishment in a real, literal, physical place called hell. A penalty that the world will not accept. Actually, a penalty that we as Christians often struggle with accepting because it is so harsh. But when we doubt it, when we struggle with it, we show that we do not yet understand either the holiness of God or the sinfulness of sin, or probably both. Though we know that it was those things that required God be made man and to die on a cross in order for it to be made right. We do not realize just how severe our condemnation was. And because of that, Christian, we do not realize just how wonderful our salvation is. Someday we will. But not because we will be recipients of the condemnation. But let us make no mistake that all the world is condemned because all the world is guilty of sin. Our actions condemn us. Matthew 25, 41 through 45. Our words condemn us. Matthew 12, 37. Our thoughts condemn us. Romans 2, 15. And rejection of Christ condemns those who reject Him. That's Mark 16, 16 and John 3, 18 that I just read. So condemnation is universal. Hopefully by now you will agree with that. Except... Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are united to Christ, Paul says, their condemnation somehow is gone. The just condemnation, just, of God's people is no more. And I say just because we we need to remember that when Paul says there is no condemnation, he is not saying that those who are in Christ are not worthy of condemnation. Because we are. But the greatness of God's work is magnified when we consider that we are certainly as worthy of condemnation as anyone. We too have broken God's law. And we continue to do so. And we... Before we were in Christ, before we believed on the Son of God, we were justly under the condemnation that was brought on by our sin. But Paul says, now, now therefore, there is no condemnation. And in the original, there is emphasis placed on those opening words. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. It was there. Christian, but now it is gone, gone, gone. You once bore the weight of your own sin and had before you an eternity of bearing that sin forever, but Paul says now that is gone. The condemnation is gone. The the just judgment against you has somehow been changed to a judgment that spares you from what you deserve. And notice that Paul says specifically that there is now no 
condemnation. None. It is all removed. Christian, there is none left for you. For those who are united to Christ by faith, there is no condemnation now. No condemnation for your past sins. No condemnation for your future sins. No condemnation awaiting you when you stand before God. It is all completely, exhaustively, utterly, absolutely gone. Amen? How can that be? How can there be no condemnation for we who, as we've stated, are so eminently worthy of being condemned by a just God? Well, that's our last point to consider this morning. The question is how. And that brings us back again to this word in chapter 8, verse 1, therefore. We have to take another look at this word and think once again, think once again, Uh, about the answer to the question, what is the therefore, therefore? What is he talking about? Therefore means that what follows is a conclusion, that, that it comes as a consequence of something that has been said before. What's it referring back to? Well, I think the best answer is that it refers back to everything that Paul has been teaching about justification. Everything he's been talking about, that act of God whereby we are forgiven of our sins and made right with God. From chapter 3, verse 20, to chapter 7, verse 25, Paul has been showing us that our sins are forgiven, as it says in chapter 3, verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look, there's that again, that redemption is in Christ. That is all in view here. Especially, I think, it has reference to chapter 5 and to its discussion of our union with Christ. And that brings us full circle again to where we began in our review about chapter 5. Again, verses 12 through 19. Paul, in those verses, goes over and over the, the idea that in Adam all die, all sin, all are condemned, but in Christ... And for those who are united to Christ as their head, there is no condemnation. Again, listen to these verses in chapter 5. Verse 16 says that the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. See, there's those two opposites again. Condemnation, that's under Adam. Justification comes under Christ. Look down in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's Christ's, leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. As a result of our union with Christ, beloved, which Paul mentions again at the end of the verse in chapter 8, verse 1, It is the fact, because of our union with Christ, that your condemnation is removed. It is gone. But again, we still have to deal with this. God is God. God is just. God is fair. I've been belaboring that point a little bit. And all the other things that we have said about God are true. So he is not able, if he is to be consistent with his nature, which of course he must be, he's not able to just 
forgive people who don't deserve it. He can't say to the guilty, you're righteous. Just make that up out of whole cloth. He can't decide to forgive people who don't deserve it. He must make them deserve it. Not deserve their forgiveness, but deserve a place in his family. And the way that he does that is through the life and death of his son. There is therefore now no condemnation for you, Christian, because, mark this, because your Savior bore the sentence that was rightly yours. He voluntarily bore it in his own body on the tree, Peter says. He owned your sin. And he accepted the condemnation for your sin. And he paid the penalty for your sin. He did it all himself when he hung on the cross. And so the reason that you have now no condemnation is because Jesus bore all of your condemnation. He drank the cup of wrath, the wrath of God against you. So that Paul could write these words that we've looked at this morning, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not ever, not some, not a little bit, none. Because Christ bore it all. Christ paid it all. And God gave that gift freely to you when he justified you. See, I told you, this is Christianity 101. This is the gospel. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let us rejoice greatly in the grace of God today and always. And to that I expect to hear a rousing amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we know that we are not worthy of this great gift. We are not deserving of anything but condemnation in and of ourselves. And so it humbles us to the dust. And then it also raises us to the heights to consider that Christ has borne not just our guilt, but our condemnation. He has borne the pronouncement of guilty. And he has borne the punishment that is consummate with that, with that decision, with that verdict. And he did it for us. And he did it because of the love that you, our triune God, has for us. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in our salvation this day for for we who are Christians. Father, I pray that if there's anyone hearing this this morning who is not in Christ, who is not a believer, Lord, that you would work in their heart through this wonderful uh, verse and these wonderful truths, that you would convict them of their sin, And Father, that you would open their hearts and that Christ would become their God, that he would become their righteousness, 
that he would become their justification. We ask this in his name. Amen.